For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. You've probably heard that line, the most sustainable fashion is the clothes you already own. Or the the other one, sustainability is an oxymoron. I'm sure I've written this before. (laughs) But essentially, the only way to be sustainable is to consume nothing. And you know what? That is fair enough. Everything we manufacture has an impact. But I guess... I think what I wanted to provoke in you is this idea that is that not a cop out? It's all very well to say just do nothing, just stop, don't make stuff, don't buy stuff. Okay, but it's not realistic, is it? This is a huge global industry that supports huge numbers of workers. At its best, it can be very creative and inspiring. But you know what? It's not going anywhere. People won't just not buy stuff. And so, I think a very interesting space to play in here and look in here is how can we really change the way we make stuff? And what should our goals around this be? Is it about harm reduction? So minimising the impacts and particularly of greenhouse gas emissions? Or should we go further and aim for positive impact? And obviously I like that more. I mean, that's why we're having this whole conversation at the moment in the industry around regenerative agriculture. Instead of just trashing the land less, we should be leaving the land in a better position than it was when we found it, right? So these are just interesting things to think about contextually as you listen to this week's episode. We're going to be meeting the amazing Sam Elsom, who is founder of something called Seaforest, which is an environmental tech company set up to tackle climate change. And they're basically on a mission to decarbonize agriculture by feeding a special seaweed supplement to livestock. And actually it reduces their methane emissions. And I'm sure you are aware that greenhouse gas emissions are not just carbon dioxide. Also methane plays its part. How does it all work? You're about to find out. But um, I should just say that if you haven't listened to last week's episode, this is like a two-parter. This is the second half of the story. So last week I was in Tasmania visiting a really beautiful property called Kingston and talking with the wool grower there, Simon Cameron. And this episode, again, is recorded on my trip to Tasmania with MJ Bale. Both Kingston and Seaforest are working with this Australian menswear brand to really try to push it when it comes to insetting in their own supply chain. So instead of just buying a bunch of carbon offsets, which is what the industry standard is when it comes to aiming for carbon neutrality, uh, we'll share some definitions in the show notes if you want to be a, a nerd and study what all this means. But basically what the industry does mostly when it tries to make good on its carbon goals is carry on as normal, but then compensate. So they emit stuff from their factory Fine, they measure that and then they buy a bunch of carbon offsets to make up for it elsewhere. But the really kind of good stuff is where a brand says, no, that's not enough. We're going to really think about ways to reduce our impact within our own supply chain. And that's what this is. So I think you're going to find it very interesting. Sam's fascinating. I loved going down there and learning about the seaweed. Fun fact. In Australia, we have 14,000 species of seaweed. There's more biodiversity here than anywhere else in the world when it comes to seaweed. And yet, we have next to no seaweed industry at all. Well, 
until now. <laughs> Let's go down to the seaweed farm with Sam Elson. Take two. <laughs> Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Sam Elson. Thank you very much, Claire. It's lovely to be here. Well, it's very lovely for me to be here because I've come on an adventure to visit you at the Sea Forest headquarters. Set the scene for us. Okay, we're we're on the southeast coast of Tasmania on uh, Palawa Pakana country, the Lutruwita, which is a, a traditional word for Tasmania. Um, it's a beautiful little town called Tribuna, which is the native word for a little a Tasmanian native hen that is used it? to be here a long time ago. Yeah, um, we're just inside a, a beautiful island called Mariah Island, um, and uh, we have a, about a five and a half hectare site here where we're running our seaweed operation. All right, I wanted to start by asking you to tell us a magical thing about seaweed. Well, seaweeds are amazing organisms. They're incredibly complex, but they and they synthesize all of these incredible compounds from the, the seawater from the ocean. Um, one of the things I think a lot of people don't realize about seaweed is just how quickly they grow. Yes. Unlike land-based plants where only the the leaves on trees photosynthesize and the nutrients come up from the, the earth through the soil, through the roots. Um, with seaweed, the entire organism is immersed in carbon and nutrients and and the sunlight, which it penetrates the water, is all that the seaweed needs to grow. So the entire organism is always photosynthesizing in such they can grow up to 30 times faster than land-based plants. So incredibly fast growing. Could it be up to a metre a day for some? I think I read that somewhere. It sounds mad. It does, yeah. So that's a native seaweed called Macrocystis. It is the fastest growing plant on the planet. So yeah, up to up to a metre a day. Well, when I just said I read that somewhere, I hadn't even made the connection. You just showed me vats of that guy who is... Well, I'm going to say the great kelp forest. It is seaweed. the giant kelp, yeah, the giant and endangered kelp around Tasmania. So yeah, but that's a really important species of seaweed. If listeners have watched this very beautiful film on Netflix about the octopus, what's it called? My octopus. My octopus teacher. My octopus teacher. Oh, it's making me cry. It's amazing. But you will see the giant kelp forests in that film, and they are like amazing underwater forests with these huge plants, aren't they? Incredible. They are. Yeah, they they form the. They're actually the the foundation species of giant kelp forests because they form the canopy. They grow really quickly right up towards the surface of the water, of, of the ocean, and then form a canopy which protects the light penetration and then supports all sorts of biodiversity underneath. And so they're, they're really important. And um, the loss of the giant kelp has actually changed the ecosystem and the natural ecology of, of kelp forests underwater and around Tasmania. We're here to talk about another kind of seaweed that you're cultivating but before we do that, since you just mentioned it, you just told me an amazing fact about the the giant kelp around these parts and how it all disappeared in the 60s, 70s. What were they using it for? Uh, margarine. Lots of kelps are used for the, the gelling agent that they have in the inside them. And um, Macrocystis has something called alginate uh, that was used to create margarine. So back in the late 60s and early 70s, the former alginate company of Australia. So they had massive barges where they harvested lots and lots of this seaweed. But I think one of the interesting things is at that time, the science didn't exist, that is, which is what we need for sustainable seaweed aquaculture in, in around the world, really, um, where you, you're harvesting, but if you're not putting back then, then how can you sustainably do that? And that's exactly what happened to that business. In fact, they harvested to a point where they were having problems with the, the natural availability of the seaweed and then they shut up shop and left. 
It's so interesting in the context of future-proofing business. Just walking around this area, Sam was showing me where previous industries have been, but now they've gone because they weren't sustainable. And what it means is that for communities like this, the jobs disappear. That's right. So we're, we're in a regional community in Tasmania. There's only about 200, I think, people that live in Tribunna. Um, and we employ 44 of them. So we're a significant employer of the region. But there's the, the relics of former mm. industries like logging, um, like the, the fish processing or fish rendering, um, which was also one of our neighbours, um, which have at times employed individuals in the local community. So... It's an interesting dynamic, in fact, because it's it's sad when these industries come and go and, the, and the, what it leaves behind in terms of unemployment um, for the local people. But then it's also environmentally, these, these businesses probably shouldn't have been in place in the first place. So, All right, we're going to talk about your business, but I've got one more question about seaweed, which is, how do you feel about it? I wanted to know what your relationship with it was. And it's funny because having just walked around your facility here, I think I know the answer, but how do you feel about it? I'm fascinated by <laughs> seaweed. You know, I think they, as I said, they're really complicated organisms. They have interesting reproductive life cycles and, you know, the abundance of sea, the different species of seaweed changes throughout the year. Um, and yeah, I, I guess I, I feel much like a, a curious child, really, just I'm always fascinated by what we're learning. And I, yeah, I love seaweed. Do you resent it because it takes you away from your family? So I happen to know your lovely wife. This is the first time I've met you, but I do know your fantastic wife, Cherie Comerford, and she is a designer. She's kind of, I think of her as a sustainability influencer. We'll share her Instagram so you can stalk her, but she's amazing. But she doesn't live here. No, she doesn't live here. And in fact, that's one of the hardest things is being away from the family so much. So we probably spend about 80% of my time down here in Tasmania. Mm. Um, we've had a huge job to do um, and it's required a, a, an enormous commitment. But, uh, you know, the entire family, it's not, not only Cherie, but we've got two children as well who adore and um, they're at fantastic ages, at 9 and 11, and it's hard being away from them. But mm. they are also share our commitment to trying to address what we can around emissions reduction and so whilst it's hard for the family I think that they recognize the importance of what mm. we're doing while we're here. It's a lot though to be a person who's going to build something you have to make sacrifices I reckon lots of our listeners will relate in different ways but when you create something and you run a business you have to give stuff up and in your case you're giving up time with your family being around your friends and where you live because you live in Sydney right? We've moved to Byron Bay actually. Oh have you? Yeah. Um, because through COVID I wasn't able to travel back and forth. So we've made huge sacrifices to make sea forest work. And I think, uh, um, you know, it, it's we I wouldn't be able to do this business if it wasn't for the support of Cherie. Mm. Um, you know, being away from the kids is really challenging, but, but, you know, she keeps our family unit together and she supports me endlessly. So that's super important. Um, so you don't resent the seaweed? <laughs> don't, I don't resent the seaweed. And I've had this unwavering belief that, um, where we would be able to achieve the results that we have. I recognised that we had a two-year journey of science and R&D without really understanding if there was a commercial pathway here, and that, that was challenging. But I've always just believed in the fact that we were going to be able to reach our goals. All right, fantastic. Let's talk about what you're doing here. Um, just tell us briefly, what is Sea Forest? So Sea Forest is a business 
building a sustainable seaweed aquaculture industry in Tasmania around the cultivation of asparagopsis predominantly as a livestock feed supplement. Asparagopsis is a native red seaweed which was discovered by the CSIRO back in 2016 when they were feeding 30 different varieties of seaweed to cows to see the impact it would have on methane abatement. Um, and there's a surprising discovery that this asparagopsis um, could virtually eliminate methane emissions from a very di small dietary inclusion. So just 30 grams of seaweed could stop an enormous amount of methane. How do you know it's safe and how small are those quantities? So it's 0.2% of the animal's diet, so a tiny amount. Um, and how we know it's safe is because the CSIRO did animal trials back in 2016 and there's been many trials since, um, including the one with MJ Bale, but also with uh, dairy group Fonterra um, and with um, large pastoral company AACO where they've been using beef trials. So we know that it's safe, but we also know the mode of action really well. So it, the way the seaweed works is it disrupts the enzymatic pathway that produces methane in the first place and it converts that which would have been expelled by the animal as the gaseous waste product. Burps. Essentially. Farts. Both? 90% burps and 10% farts. Okay, 90% burps, 10% farts. Good. So basically, ruminants like cattle and like sheep, they, they have four stomachs and one of those stomachs is like an enormous gas chamber. That's why they produce so much methane and that's why they're having such an impact on global warming. Um, but the seaweed disrupts the enzymatic pathway and but it, not only does it stop methane production, it also increases productivity. So the animal gets an improved sort of feed efficiency more outcome. More energy. More energy. From the food. From every mouthful. So it actually reduces the amount of food you have to give them or not? Yes. Uh -huh. You get 20% increase in growth. You also told me that, never mind the studies, through history there's been cows eating seaweed in Scotland. Cows just eat seaweed if they see it, if it's there and there's nothing else there maybe. That's right. Lots of livestock farmers use um, lick blocks and things to deliver salt and minerals to their animals um, in, when they're out in, in the paddocks. So there is a kind of precedent is what I'm saying. It's not like it's never, it's not like a cow, there's no cow anywhere that's never encountered seaweed before. Some have. No, it's a, it's a common practice actually in places like Scotland um, where the cows would lick this, you know, get the salt and minerals from the mm. seaweed washed up on the beach. Mm. We're going to talk about how and, and also how the trials have developed and what you're, what you're doing now, but this work was done by the CSIRO or scientists there, which is for international listeners. Um, Australia's peak science body. It's sort of like Australia's NASA. They had figured out that the seaweed could be used to potentially reduce emissions from livestock, but there was no commercial production in this country, right? That's or in right. any country. Yeah, that's right. So it was a seaweed that didn't have a lot of interest really until they'd done that science. Um, and absolutely remarkable outcome at the time had this enormous bottleneck and it became both um, our challenge but also our opportunity at Seaforest is to develop that the methods for cultivation and therefore the industry scale supply. We have about 26 million cows in Australia um, and even <laughs> more sheep. Uh, 26 million people? Yeah, it's interesting. Shut up. I didn't know there were that many cows. So there's almost a, well, there's a cow for every person. Practically, yeah, that's right. Um, and so, yeah, beef is a huge industry, predominantly an export industry, but it produces about 16% of Australia's emissions each year through, through enteric methane. But we're going to also talk about sheep and wool. And last week I went to see, if you listened to last week's episode, fantastic. If not, go back and listen, where I interviewed Simon Cameron on his wool 
growing property Kingston and you've been working with him to use the seaweed to reduce the emissions from sheep and just finished a a small trial there right? Yeah that's right Simon's a true pioneer and an absolute legend he's a I think a third generation sheep farmer um, here in Tasmania and he was really keen from day one to use our product and um, yeah I take my hat off to Simon because he every single day you know he would wake up and make sure he fed his sheep our our seaweed smoothie it was at the time um, to ensure that he was having the maximum environmental impact so um, yeah it's fantastic to be working with people like Simon. I do have one more quick question for you which is what would you say to the vegan argument which would be we should just stop producing meat or products from animals wool etc if you listen to climate scientists uh, we have until 2030 to reduce 50 percent of our global emissions we have over a billion cows on the planet and you know those cows are producing co2 equivalent every year through methane through methane emissions so my answer to that is that we're still going to have the impact of emissions and we need to find solutions um, in the next 10 years what sort of impact can it have have you got goals around how much methane reduction you want to see we do methane has 28 times the warming impact on co2 in the atmosphere it has a shorter half-life in our atmosphere so it doesn't last 100 years like co2 does we'd like to get to in the next four years um, achieving at 1 million tons of co2 equivalent through methane abatement what have you done so far Um, this year we'll do around 200,000 tons of co2 it sounds good to me i've got to say it's really hard to visualize because we can't see these emissions it's so when true. you say a million tons ago that's a lot is it what <laughs> well it's a long way from what we need our, our in australia alone to halve australia's agricultural emissions that means reducing 55 million tons and actually i mean i've just been out there simon is walking around that station on his own of course he's got help but he's going down there doing this stuff it's not like this is an enormous commercial operation he's going down there with the feed and he's feeding the sheep every day in his gumboots that's right in the middle of winter too and he gets the, we get some harsh conditions down here in, in tasmania it gets cold you gotta be tough yeah you're not you're from noosa <laughs> <laughs> I'm climatising. Uh, for international listeners, Noosa is known for its fantastic beach. And I once, I took my mum there once and we went swimming and the water was like a bath. She was like, what? Australia's amazing. It's like a warm bath. Not here. No, not here. It's, uh, it's quite cool. But, um, but I've grown to love the environment. I mean, I, I love nature. There's so much on offer in Tasmania, I think, from mountain bike riding to rock climbing and, and the, the walks of national parks. It's an amazing place. So... Uh, two days ago, a mad cyclist by the name of Two Dogs, you need to see a picture of this man, <laughs> and Matt Jensen, who is the founder of MJ Bale, the Australian menswear label that is partnering with both Sea Forest and Kingston to produce what they're calling zero emission wool, which is grown on the Kingston farm, and then it's going to be processed and spun and knitted in Geelong or outside of Geelong in regional Victoria into these knits. Anyway, this guy... Two dogs <laughs> and Matt Jensen were, began the first leg of moving this wool from Kingston. Uh, they're going to take it to the Bass Strait. Where Two dogs is going to sail the boat, I believe, is as he? well. Yeah. And then they're going to take it so across the Bass Strait and they're going to cycle it yeah. to Geelong to be spun and knitted. It's nuts. Absolutely crazy, but but awesome. You know, I think what that work does is and is it highlights uh, the complexities of the supply chain. You know, and we and what we're shining a light on here is also. 
you know, not not just the logistics, but also the fact that we you know we have a, a dying industry in Australia. You know, we used to manufacture and spin wool, and we used to create garments here, and and a lot of that industry has died with the, you know, industrialization of garment production in places like China and things. So, I think it's a really nice exercise to shine a light on what's possible. The bale that they took on the bike on this epic adventure comes from, or is the first clip from the sheep that have been fed, the 48 or 49 sheep that have been fed your asparagopsis. That's right. Yeah, that's really exciting to be a part of that. The vision from both Matt and also his head of brand, Jono Lobin, um, to, to, to follow this through, you know, there's there's not the same pressures on the fashion industry as there is on the red meat industry in terms of addressing emissions. There's no necessity for them to do that. And I think that's just a, a true pioneering step in creating a, a better future and, and different ways of looking at our supply chain. Sam, your background is actually in fashion. So I happen to know that you wanted to be a doctor and you told me before you were always really curious about science and love science at school but your background is and you're obviously working with scientists here in this facility and in sea forest but your background's actually in fashion so you know about supply chains i do yeah and in back in uh 2004 we started a fashion label called elsom and our intent at that time was to and what we did was looked at the supply chain so we were looking at the social and environmental impacts of the supply chain was that your kind of motivation for doing it well it was because of being exposed, so I was a designer at other businesses beforehand and had seen first firsthand the impacts of the supply chain going to places like India where they're growing cotton and the, the heavy use of chemicals and um, and the downstream impacts of that would have on communities using the water for bathing and cooking. Um, and then looking at you know factories in overcrowded factories in China and Bangladesh mm. and and so there's that that impacts that we're having and I felt like at that time when and still today, largely, when you go and walk past a high street store and you see garments in the window, you don't see any of that backstory. It's all hidden from view and, and there's not, wasn't certainly then the transparency that there is today. Mm. Um, and so we set about trying to do things differently. You work for One Teaspoon. I did work at, with Jamie at One Teaspoon for a little while. I've been doing some digging. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you worked at the Upside as a menswear creative director. Yep, that's right. One Teaspoon is a kind of surfy, streety label uh i'm not sure how well known it would be outside of australia but big one here and you know general pants staple those companies were not in the early 2000s i actually know when one teaspoon started but when i'm thinking about when i remember those big kind of street and surf labels being very buzzed about in this country in the mid 2000s there was zero conversation about sustainability zero no pressure to try to do anything about it. No one even knew what it was. Yeah, sustainability, even as a term, really it was only used to refer to just the, the longevity within a business, not an environmental impact or social impact for that matter. Um, so it was hard. I think we were pushing uphill somewhat because it also meant in order to validate and, and be involved in the supply chain, meant, chain meant putting heads in the business that others didn't have to, you know, so we could do a sketch on a paper and send a garment off to China and they would send you... 300 or 1,000 of those garments back. Um, we had to, you know, be involved in the logistics with cotton farms in India and, you know, mills in Italy, um, weaving cotton and, and, you know, begging for favours and small runs and things, which was very exciting at the time. We, we, it was, I um, really enjoyed that journey. Um, 
and the shift for me from fashion into where I am now, which is, you know, some would say is a really significant pivot, um, a career pivot, came about because of the impact um, that that we need to have as a human race in order to curb emissions. Well, okay. So you've got a long career. You actually studied at, was it St. Martin's? Yep. So you've been through fashion education. You've worked in different fashion brands. You've run your own fashion brand, Cherise in fashion, 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 fashion. <laughs> it is a leap to then be running a science-based startup, work with big cattle, work with livestock and sheep, change the way farmers potentially feed in order to address climate impacts. It's a huge leap. Huge. It's a, a huge, a complete re-education. I love really, it. In many I love ways. leaps. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but actually, it's still entrepreneurial, which you were when you had your brand. Yeah. And I think it has, there's the same theme there too, I think, in terms of trying to create positive change and, and, um, and, and environmental change. Um, Is it Tim Flannery's fault? It's Tim Flannery's fault. He's <laughs> to blame completely. We share. We're both fans of Tim Flannery. I wrote the last book I wrote because of Tim Flannery. I went to Heron Island off the Barrier Reef to record an episode of this podcast with him. And it's episode 17, if you want to go back and listen to it. He is an Australian scientist, explorer, prolific author, and the founder of Australia's Climate Council. He's a dead set legend. He... he um, he discovered 17 new species of mammals, including tree kangaroos who'd never been seen. He's amazing, yeah. and he's written some amazing books as well. Um, and, and one of the great things that Tim can do as a scientist is to be able to um, distill down really complex reports into very digestible can. language. The reason why I said, ooh, I wrote a book because of Tim, not to talk about what I did, but to say that he's a kind of... If you talk about influencers... Of course, he's a serious scientist, but he is such an influencer. People meet him and change course because of him. I can think of more than one example. Um, Lizzie Beg, who is the co-founder of Spell, which mm-hmm. is an amazing brand in Byron Bay. She changed her whole approach to business because of him to put sustainability first. He is amazing. And he's dedicated a good portion of his life to, to advocating for climate change. So what happened? You heard him speak about the climate crisis or about seaweed? Well, it was about the IPCC report that came out in 2017. So that that was what was the catalyst. Um, and it was part of the Climate Council. And he had um, some fairly daunting diagrams showing exponential rate of change that we face as a result of increasing carbon concentrations in our atmosphere. And if anyone's seen an exponential graph, you would see that very quickly it gets out of control. Um, and I was blown away because I think that as someone who's always cared and been concerned about the environment and and known about climate change i just wasn't fully informed at how acute the issue was and just what a finite amount of time we had to do something about it i think that was for me really the catalyst and the good thing about tim's message was that there was at the very end a, a sense of hope through potential solutions um and one of those solutions was seaweed so in 2017 tim published a book called sunlight and seaweed in which he unpacks how seaweed could help us in the fight to draw down carbon. Essentially, if we were to cover, I can't even remember how many Australias we would need to cover in trees in order to draw down the amount of carbon that we need to, one of his big ideas was that we could use seaweed in the oceans. I think it comes back to the fact that seaweeds grow so quickly through photosynthesis, and that gives them the ability to capture carbon. And interestingly, we've done a lot of work in this space, and 
40% of the biomass that we harvest from the ocean is carbon captured from the marine environment. And as a planet, our oceans have increased in acidity by 26%. When you say biomass, what do you mean? I mean plant mass, like the, the weight of the seaweed that we harvest from the ocean. Right. So I think what Tim was referring to there was the the fact that seaweeds grow so quickly. So through photosynthesis, as we talked about earlier, um, they can grow up to 30 times faster than land-based plants, but they can also capture enormous amounts of carbon. He was talking about a potential future where large areas of the ocean could be used to cultivate seaweed in order to act as a carbon sink to draw down carbon, and then the process would be, so they'd be grown on racks further down in the ocean, but the process would be that then it would be cut off and sink down to the deep ocean where it would essentially be stuck there. What you're doing is you're harvesting it. And I think both have their merits. So Tim's idea is really future and big thinking. Um, and that's what we need. That's how we inspire change. But we've, we've our journey started with a, a native seaweed that had never been cultivated in Australia. And that's interesting in itself because it, whilst... We here in Australia are one of the most biodiverse places on the planet for seaweed. We have more of the 14,000 species of seaweed here in Australia than any other place on the planet. Yet we have no seaweed aquaculture industry when we look around. Is that right? So what what would aquaculture industry for seaweed look like elsewhere? Is it for food? Is it in South Korea? Where do they grow it? That's, that's right. South Korea, Japan, China um, are the big ones. Norway as well. Then um, they grow up for different reasons. There's... Uh, you know, we, as I said earlier, there's toothpaste, um, there's paint. Are they using the, They're um, using the gelling agent, alginate, um, but also for edible markets. So wakame, nori that we use when we have sushi. Um, there's lots of different um, purposes, but they're predominantly, so it's about $11 billion industry globally, but most of those species uh, northern hemisphere endemic so we can't we're not allowed to grow non-endemic species of seaweed in our ocean anywhere in the world and so this seaweed asparagopsis that we grow is native to australia and so it gives us this huge opportunity to not only develop an industry but also decarbonize australian agriculture by feeding it to livestock so i said it was a huge transition to jump from fashion to this startup how on earth did it happen you can't just listen to tim and go right i'm going to start a seaweed venture that's true. I uh, I went, you know, I began to research after listening to Tim speak and feeling very inspired and, and moved enough to take action. Um, and, you know, like keeping the day job, but at the same time researching um, how we could start seaweed farming. And it started as a concept, looking at what seaweeds we can, were allowed to grow in Australia, what are the fastest growing, what are, have methodologies for cultivation. And then I stumbled on this CSIRO work back in 2016 where they were feeding 30 different varieties of seaweed to cattle, seeing the impact that would have on methane. I picked up the phone and spoke to the scientist that was involved in that and uh, he explained to me the mode of action and the way the whole thing worked. And Who is he? His name is Dr Rob Kinley and he introduced me to Professor Rocky Denise who's the head of aquaculture at James Cook University and was responsible for introducing the seaweeds to the CSIRO science back in 2016. Um, and, you know, Rocky was very generous with his time and it was really through Rocky's mentorship um, you know, every time, I guess it would be every Friday, we would have long hour conversations. And at the end of those conversations, my inbox would ping with published literature. <laughs> and I would have uh, all of this reading to do over the weekend. And then I'd have more questions next week. And we just 
developed this relationship even though he's based in Townsville and at that time I was in Sydney um, he was very generous with his time and I think that helped develop my knowledge um, gave me confidence in what understanding better what what we knew about seaweeds what was possible and what other people around the world were doing it's still a very short journey to go from the idea to set up a startup to commercially grow this asparagopsis and then three years later you're doing it you're working with commercial partners you're doing it yeah i think one of the great things that's happened with sea forest apart from being a very lucky company we have amazing individuals you know so all of the experts in this seaweed have did their phd under rocky most of, of those uh, retained most, most of those individuals are retained by sea forest so we have an amazing scientific team um, i was introduced uh, through a mutual friend to stephen turner who's a, a managing director we have amazing finance team as well um, we have aquaculture engineers we had research at three universities um, at james cook at University of Tasmania and also the University of Waikato. We divided and conquered and we had this whole really quite exciting science journey of, of discovery through having almost like research sprints, which was amazing. Uh, so I think the success of the company has been down to the fact that we've got incredible people. We've built an amazing team. Just tell us very briefly, because it is complicated, how this particular Asparagopsis taxiformis operates. Um, so all seaweeds are complicated organisms and they have interesting reproductive life histories, which sounds really complicated, but it's not so complicated. Um, seaweeds are driven by three essential things and those things drive photosynthesis, so light, temperature and nutrients. And under certain environmental cues, our seaweed has a life phase where there are male and female plants that are attached to a coral or rock and they will reproduce to create offspring that look nothing like the parents. So mm. like two humans giving birth to a possum. <laughs> and that I've looked at them in the tanks. They do not look related. <laughs> it's true. So then that life phase... So how you explain it to your kids. <laughs> it's that's basically well. the level of my scientific knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we then grow... That, so that, that, that life phase is, is asexual and then under, again, very specific environmental conditions, then it reproduces and creates offspring which form back into male and female plants. So there's three cycles? That's right. There's three life phases of the seaweed. And originally, um, biologists thought that there were two different varieties of seaweed originally. It took them quite a while before they realised they were the same. You just showed me the tanks next door. What are you doing in there? So we're growing um, one of those life phases called the tetrasporophyte. Uh, which is the asexual life phase and that basically that production methodology um, works through photosynthesis so the tanks are filled with seawater seawater has all of the carbon and nutrients the seaweed needs to grow and we have the sunlight that provides the um, the last essential ingredient this is really important because essentially zero inputs so you're not adding chemicals you're not messing with what would happen in the open ocean you're replicating conditions and in lay terms it's sun nutrients water that's right the interesting thing is with that operation that you saw has runs on seawater so we pump the water in from the ocean and we use this the water to to grow the seaweed but the discharge is more alkaline or oxygenated than the water that came in and because the seaweed's taken it out that's right yeah. and so the interesting thing is that as a planet uh, 
71% of the Earth's surface is covered by ocean and that ocean has increased in acidity or carbon concentration by 26% in the last 40 years. And so we need marine plants in order to reduce the carbon. But ocean acidification, that's a, a very scary climate impact. It's Absolutely. one of the reasons why the corals are dying. It is. And, and here in Tasmania, actually, as, as a result of the East Australian current, our waters are warming faster than other places on the, on the planet. Is that right? Yeah. One of the interesting things as well, you mentioned earlier about how we can't grow enough trees anymore, but there are co-benefits with having large marine farms of seaweed. Well, no, we can't grow enough trees to mitigate the climate impacts because you would have to cover almost all the land we've got with trees. It's just not possible. That's right. But but the ocean, which we, we can, we have, I think the equivalent is about 30% of the Earth's ocean to capture is that right? all of this, all of the carbon. Yeah, so seaweeds are what are known as a zero input crop for that reason. They, have, they don't require nutrients uh, and they don't require any fertilisers or pesticides or, or they don't also rely on finite resources like fresh water for irrigation. Mm. So there's a, quite a few reasons why it's a, there's a strong argument for marine farming of seaweeds but they i think one other thing that's really important to mention is the the co-benefits so the seaweeds provide habitat and so what we find is there's an abundance of marine life so other fish and seahorses you know if we were driving past and the forest was no longer there we'd notice but with the ocean all the changes that are happening are beneath the surface and particularly in a place like tasmania where the waters are cold you know not enough individuals are really noticing the changes um, and it's really only in recent years that the the University of Tasmania has taken a real focus on this and one of the key things I think is the the, giant, the loss of giant kelp forests around Tasmania and I think we're just starting to realise the impacts of our activities. Before we finish I'll just ask you to tell us what you're doing with that as an extra part of sea forest. Yeah so one of the amazing things of having a a world-leading science team is that we've been able to close the life cycle of many varieties of seaweed, not just asparagopsis. And um, because we have so much biodiversity down here in Australia, there's a lot to be explored. And one of the key species was the macrocystis, uh, which is the giant kelp. And we've been able to grow 250,000 of these tiny little giant kelps for the first three months of their life and onto little pebbles and we gave them to a team of researchers at the University of Tasmania where we were, they were able to restore a, a hectare of giant kelp forest at Fortescue Bay down here in Tasmania. So it's a new frontier of restoration or conservation. All right, we've run out of time, but I did tell you uh, before we pressed record that I'd done some research about you, so I'm not just asking your wife. So I know all kinds of things about your past, e.g. that you wanted to be a doctor. And... I know from a Stab magazine profile in 2016 that you used to work in Redfern, which is where I live, that actually lots of things were gleaned from this. But if you will allow me, I'm going to come back to the end of this profile, which is pretty old. Stab magazine is a surf magazine, by the way. I'm married to a surfer. That's why I'm into it. But at the end, they asked you for some tips for success. Do you remember? I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You said, do what you love, be unique. Don't be defensive, accept criticism, critique your own work, and every day think, how can I be better? That was good. Wow, that seems insightful. (laughs) So let's finish on that. How can Sea Forest be better? Well, I think we've got an enormous problem to solve. 
I mean, I think it's fantastic the progress that we've made, but we have a billion cows on the planet. We have 26 million in Australia alone, um, and we have 16% of global emissions and 75% of agricultural emissions coming from livestock um, enteric methane. So we can grow enough seaweed at the moment to feed around 100,000 head of cattle, but we have an enormous job to do. So how can we be better? Well, we need to optimise our production methodologies. We need to... um, we need to try and make um, it understood that that livestock production doesn't have to produce emissions, and we should demand um, that those emissions are reduced as consumers. and um, And I think CFR's role in that is to try to get more of this product made for the for the world and mm-hmm. to have a greater impact. You got work to do. Lots of work to do. You're going to get Kelly Slater to pay for it. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get Mick Fanning to join your board? No, no, he's not on the Damn board. It. No, no, he's he's not on the board, but he's a very supportive shareholder. Good yeah. on you. This has been fun. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Claire. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode and read our magazine over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you, because I love you, because I love you.